On today's show, we have pirates, John Kennedy Jr. and Vikings. That's quite an eclectic mix. And you may be asking yourself, what do they have in common? Underwater explorer Barry Clifford, of course. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Only one real pirate ship has ever been discovered from the so-called golden age of piracy. In 1984, the New York Times heralded this discovery on the front page of its science section. Underwater archaeologist and close friend, Barry Clifford, welcome to Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher. How are you, Barry? I'm doing well, Richard. Thank you very much. Good to see you. And you're, you're right now sitting up uh, in Provincetown in, on the tip of Cape Cod. I have 20 feet of water underneath me right now. I don't have to mow the lawn. You know, my house is about a thousand feet offshore. All I have is just lobster and sharks under my house. <laughs> Barry, you've had some incredible discoveries in your life. Captain Morgan's ship. And I know a lot of people just associate that with a rum, the Santa Maria. I know you're, you've been starting to look for Vikings, but perhaps the crowning discovery in your career so far has been the pirate ship, the Witta. And, you know, Again, when I think of you with all these incredible discoveries, I think of you as more like Sherlock Holmes instead of the world-class underwater archaeologist that you are. Yeah, I've always, from the time I was a, a kid, I've always been exploring just out in the, I lived in an area where there were a lot of cranberry bogs and they would drain the bogs and, 
you know, all of these treasures would come to life. So from the time I was just a kid, I was always looking for things. You know, I do the same thing now, not just with pirate treasure and Vikings, but if I go on my daily walks or bike rides, I'm, I'm constantly looking for things. You know, whether it's a white rock that I'll put a heart on and bring home to Margo. And um, I'm just, I, I just am fascinated with just solving riddles. And I think that's it with, with clues. When you do the math on some of these shipwrecks and you put all of the pieces together, and then the key to a lot of this is having experience with diving and, and you know, and being able to recognize things that most people wouldn't recognize. Like for example, when I used to, as a kid, well, a kid, I was in my early twenties, I would hire a plane and I would fly, or fly around Plymouth looking for the Benedict Arnold. And what I would look for is just like the different color in the weeds because iron would cause the weeds to grow. They, they would look red and just little clues like that. So I've, I've been always sort of putting the math, you know, using the math to put the pieces together to solve the riddles. But you know, when you, especially around seaside ports is always tales of this and that. What made you think that the Witta, a pirate ship, was actually real and could be found? Well, as a boy, I grew up in Brewster and my uncles were fishermen. And after they would come home in the, in the afternoon, they would all sit around the fish shack and tell stories, you know, tell stories of the war, tell stories of, you know, the fish that got away or the deer that they didn't get. And one of the favorite stories of my uncle Bill, who my other uncles referred to as uncle bull <laughs> was the story of the Witta and the pirate coming back to Cape Cod, Sam Bellamy to rendezvous with his girlfriend, Maria Hallett, who had been condemned as a witch. Legend had it that they met when Bellamy was here on the Cape looking to put a crew together to go to the Caribbean to salvage the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet. And then there he met Maria Hallett, who was this young girl. Her eyes were as blue as the deeps of Gull Pond and her hair was the color of corn silk. This is the legend, you know, and every Cape Codder heard these stories, depending on who their uncle was, you know, with a little spin on it here and there. But there was something behind this story. Was it just a story? Was it just a, a bedtime story? Or was there something real behind it? So that really caught my interest. And then I started putting the pieces together. I actually found people who had found coins on the beach, who showed me coins that their great grandfathers had given them, you know, gold coins with slices in them where pirates hit the coins with a, with a knife to test it to see if it were counterfeit. And all of a sudden this began to be real to me. Hey, wait a minute, this is more than just a bedtime story. This is real. There is a pirate ship out there. And the more that I learned about it, the more fascinated I became. And that's how, that's how it started with me. So what, what was the, um, the first aha moment? I know that you had gone through some literary works and heard about a mask being exposed somewhere along the shore. 
So you've actually looked at literary work that happened 100 or 200 years after this supposed shipwreck. Yeah, there was a lot of... Um, one of the things that we did um, was actually John Kennedy Jr. and me when John was working for me back in the late 70s and early, early 80s as a diver. We went to the Harvard map room to look for documents. And one of the maps, the, ma the, the map, map that we were looking for was a map that a man by the name of Cyprian Southack made. And he was hired by the governor of Massachusetts to look for the widow. And he had a map, you know, he was a cartographer. And on the cartographer, on the map he wrote, pirate ship widow lost where I buried 102 men drowned. He basically was, you know, an X on the map. And this, this man was a, a, sh a ship captain and he was a cartographer. Well, to me, again, this is, you know, d doing the math and doing, putting the pieces together. I, I thought, okay, self-hack. And I've heard this story from Uncle Bull. And then you <laughs> get... Cyprian Southack. What is it about Cyprian Southack? Well, wait a minute. He's a cartographer. And how do cartographers make their reputation? By being accurate. So I'm dealing with a person now who, who's made his reputation, who was hired by the governor based on the fact that he was an accurate person. So anything that he told me, I was taking as being very accurate information. And he also wrote a letter to the governor or two letters to the governor and he kept a ship's log. So he was describing in the letters and in the ship's log where the widow wrecked in the map and then explaining to the governor why he couldn't salvage the shipwreck, that the water was messy with sand and there was a great sea upon the wreck and the moon cussers had come from 20 miles and were causing all sorts of problems. They were robbing the dead pirates that had washed ashore. And all of this information was in these letters and the ship's log and the map that this man had made. And after we found all of this information and started analyzing, it was like, you know what? There's a good reason why he couldn't salvage the ship. It was in April, the water was freezing cold. They didn't have dive gear in 1700. And like he said, the riches with the guns, quote unquote, the riches with the guns will be buried in the sand. That's what Southack wrote in his letter. The riches with the guns will be buried in the sand. And then the more we began, you know, finding more documents, we realized that uh, Sam Bellamy had robbed 54 ships. So the cargoes and treasures of 54 ships would be in this one time capsule, which is unprecedented. You have this incredible cross section of cultural material going back to 1700 to begin with, but we have cannons that were antiques in 1717. We found 61 cannons today. And some of them were antiques in 1717 because the pirates were taking anything of value. So here you have this incredible collection of material 
all encapsulated within bags in chests. Again, this is according to primary source documents. One of the pirates who survived the shipwreck, one of the eight pirates that survived from the wrecks of the widow, there were two ships that wrecked. They were taken to Boston and tried. And one of the pirates testified, and he wasn't bragging to the magistrate, that 50 pounds was added to every man's share, there being 180 men on deck. The money was kept in bags, in chests, between decks. In bags, in chests, between decks. This is a, he wasn't bragging to the judge. They hanged this man. And then Southack said, after watching the ships from the cliff, uh, the widow from the cliffs in this horrendous storm, they couldn't get there. They could only watch it. And then he said the next day she turned bottom up and the decks fell out. The riches with the guns will be buried in the sand. So we have the pirate telling us that 50 pounds was added to every man's share, 180 men, that's four and a half tons. And then Southack telling us the treasures buried with the guns. And then he has a map that says pirate ship widow lost where I buried 102 men drowned. And he also said that they were two miles from Samuel Harding's house. Samuel Harding was one of the moon cushers who was robbing the ship. And Southack said he was just as evil as any of the pirates. And, South, and, and Harding's brother, who was also one of the moon cussers and who later was hanged for murdering his wife. So all of these stories started coming to light and I started putting the math together. And then we went there, John and I, John Kennedy and I went there in the fall of 1982, a couple of days after Thanksgiving, after Walter Cronkite told, told me, he says, Barry, if I were you, I'd go look for that wreck. Oh my God, this is an interesting, wait, I just want to get my timeline straight. So the actual shipwreck was what year? Uh, it was April 1717. 1717. The map or the descriptions you got were from what year? Um, 1717. All right. Take, were, take us up to now. Walter Cronkite and John Kennedy Jr., if we should drop some names here, are, are now, this is 1970-something, and they're telling you you should go find this shipwreck. So how did you find it? Well, John was, you know, John was... Uh, was my diving partner back then. And, um, you know, we both lived on the vineyard and I had a dive shop and, um, you know, he, he, he wanted to go on adventures. He loved working for me. And, you know, when he worked for the widow, when we first, well, so anyway, so yeah, Walter Cronkite, I was, again, I don't want to drop names. Um, but a lot of these well-known people would be at, you know, at the Styron's place. And one day after dinner, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, I've been going, I'm still going to Thanksgiving dinner there after like 45, more than 40 years. Um, Cronkite, you know, said to me after dinner, uh, I told him a story about salvaging the Martha's Vineyard Islander, which was the ferry boat that wrecked. And I salvaged the boat and I was I got a salvage award for that. And there was a lot of press in the local vineyard papers about it. So Walter was talking to me about that. And then he said, what else are you doing, Barry? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about going to look for the pirate ship Witta. And I told him the story. And he said, if I were you, I would go do that. And so I 
that's how that's how we went. And he had a very distinctive voice. It would be Walter Cronkite, right? It was sort of that very distinct voice. So now, what? Tell me about the moment, the day that you actually found the widow. What year it is? What year is it? Take me through uh, that day. Well, this is yeah. Again, one more thing about Walter. You know, you usually get nervous around. Walter was the kind of person you didn't get nervous around. He made you feel like you were so uh, right off the, you know, that, that's the way I always felt with him. We, I would often go over to his house over in Edgartown and, you know, I was kind of like a, maybe a distant relative or something to him. That's the way he treated me. And he was just an incredible guy. But anyway, we found the wreck in um, 1984 and then we confirmed the wreck when we found the bell in 1985. And this was the cover of the New York Times uh, when we found the ship's bell that said the Witta Galley 1716. That was on the Witta Bell. So the um, I've heard your story before. I've actually heard your story from uh, John Kennedy Jr., who you know was a fraternity brother of mine. And I remember him telling me during that time period that he was diving with you. And he said, you can't even believe how many great white sharks are there. And I thought he was exaggerating until I actually visited that area in um, Cape Cod and realized there's a hell of a lot of great white sharks. So when you're diving here, it's not very deep, but it is just covered with sharks. Is that correct? Yeah, it's... um... Actually, the, the White Shark Conservatory, they're, they're moving, we're talking to them right now about moving into our building here and, you know, at the end of the pier this summer. But um, yeah, we call it Shark Alley where we dive. And my son, Brandon, now is diving really close to shore. Norm, years ago, we, we were always diving in these deep pits that we would dig. And we, because the ship was buried under so much sand, but now we're diving close to shore because the ship broke up and a lot of it washed ashore. So my son, Brandon, a couple of years ago started finding all of these African bracelets and, you know, another cannon that was like, you know, a hundred yards away from the main pile of the shipwreck. And so that's where we're working now, but it's right in the middle of Shark Alley. This is where all of the sharks are. And, you know, we just, you know, we just try to, you know, just try not to aggravate. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good motto. A lot of people associate the beginning of democracy in America with 1776. But you feel that the real true test of democracy was before that. And it really was a true democracy. Tell me about that. Well, I actually, um, one of the, when I first started to look for the shipwreck, it was just a pirate ship. But then the more I started to learn about it, and I actually wrote a letter to the, that was put in the editorial page of the Cape Cod Times back in, I think it was 92, where I said the real treasure of the Witta was the story that here's a ship that was owned by a, a, a slave company. And the business of this company was to buy people, Africans in Africa, and bring them back to the new world and sell them, which was completely legal, big fortune, you know, big, big business at that time. And, but if you were a slave and escaped, 
and stole the money that paid for you or your family, you were, that was illegal. It's okay to sell your family, that they sell your family, but you can't steal the money that paid for your family. This is the irony of the widow. And that's what I, that the great irony of the widow is these Africans were experimenting, you know, former slaves were experimenting in democracy with Europeans on board the widow, a former slave ship. So here you have a former slave ship where Africans, Native Americans, uh, Englishmen, Scots were all equal on this one ship where everybody had an equal share, everybody had a vote, and Africans were being elected as even officers during the golden age of piracy and even captains. But this was all covered up by ethnocentric historians. So it's been my mission. And I, again, I wrote about this back in the early days when it was more than just how much the treasure was worth. It, the treasure is that on board this slave ship, former slaves and Native Americans were experimenting in democracy with Europeans. And there's no, and look, not all pirates were like Sam Bellamy. Sam Bellamy um, was never, uh, there's never been any information that I've ever seen about him killing anyone. And he had come back to Cape Cod to rendezvous with Maria Hallett and they were headed up to Maine where they were gonna build a settlement. That's why they had brought all of these extra cannons with them and all of that. And there is where I think they would have continued their experiment in democracy. And that was the plan. And then they wrecked in the storm off of Wellfleet. It would have been very interesting to see what would happen, what would have happened if Bellamy hadn't drowned during that period. Um, again, um, a third of the Witta crew were former slaves and they drowned as free men on board a former slave ship. I guess given the choice of being a slave, a runaway slave that's working on a ship, that doesn't seem like very much of a choice, right? It seems like, you know, given that you could live a free life on a pirate ship or be a slave, you know, everybody would choose to be on a pirate ship. I know you had Native Americans. So when this ship did wreck, there were people who walked off the ship. There were people who were captured. They were tried. Tell me a little about that. Well, there were two vessels. Another vessel that uh, South ha uh, that um, that uh, Bellamy had captured, you know, a you know a while before, called the Marianne, and he had crew on board that ship as well. And that wrecked a few miles to the south of where the Witter wrecked. But there were eight pirates that survived the two shipwrecks. Two from the Witter and six from the Marianne, but they were all Witta crew. And subsequently they were captured, these eight pirates. I'm not sure how many have got, might've gotten away. Maybe even Bellamy got away because there's no record of them finding Bellamy ashore, you know, drowned. And so we don't know for sure what happened with Bellamy. Um, but of the eight pirates that were taken to Boston and tried, two of the pirates were acquitted and those two pirates were represented by Cotton Mather from Salem witchcraft infamy. And that's a crazy they, story. I mean, this is Scarlet Letter. This is uh, Cotton Mather, who we read about as kids, and he represented two of the pirates. What happened to the other six? 
Well, he, Cotton Mather um, also wrote a sermon about this, you know, the evils of piracy and all of that. But the two pirates that he represented were acquitted. And the other six pirates were hanged in Boston, including a former slave by the name of Hendrick Quinter. And his last words recorded were, tis a dark time for me. And Hendrick was a free man on board the Widow. So it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating time capsule that has to be preserved. And that's my mission now is to preserve the shipwreck, to preserve the history and to bring the fact, you know, you know, to go further. You know, here you've got, you know, you've got former slaves experimenting with Europeans and democracy, you, you know, a few decades before George Washington. And, um, that needs to be carefully recorded. These people were outlaws. Make make no, no mistake about it. These people were all outlaws. While it was perfectly legal to buy and sell people, it was illegal to escape if you were a slave. You were property. You belonged to people. And the fact that, you know, this, this is the sort of story. It was swept up. I never saw this as a kid. I never saw African pirates you know, in any of the Arrow Flynn movies. This was all swept under the ethnocentric carpet. And I think it's extremely important, especially during these times, to bring out what humans do. They want to be free. And if you put them together, they guess what? They will elect the best person to lead them, you know, to lead them on a ship. The person who is most likely to lead them, you know, to safety, to get the most treasure is the person they will elect. And Bellamy was elected. And that's, that's democracy. And Africans were part of that vote in electing Bellamy. So Barry, after this discovery, uh, this was, you know, definitely, you know, celebrated by the press, uh, the general public, but you didn't re- receive the same accolades from other underwater archaeologists or archaeologists in general. Where, what was the sort of rub? Was it jealousy? Was it methodology? You know, why did you? Why were you the black sheep of the archaeology world? Well, I don't know if I was like that. Here in Massachusetts, which is, you know, it's a state that's high edu- you know, the high level of education here in Massachusetts. I sent you a letter this morning from the State Board of Massachusetts calling this a model for private archaeology in Massachusetts. So we're considered a model for private archaeology by the state of Massachusetts, where we have our permit. But there were always certain archaeologists who don't believe that anybody from the private sector should be allowed to do archaeological work. In other words, anyone who uses their own money, they have to think anyone who uses their own money, what does that tell you? The big C word, communist, you know, is a treasure hunter. So anyone who uses their own money should not be allowed to go looking for shipwrecks and to preserve them. You know, millions of people have seen our exhibit that have traveled around the the world with National Geographic, um, the exhibit that we've built here in Yarmouth, the museum we've, we have here in Provincetown. These were National Geographic exhibits. Uh, this was the cover of all of the treasures in the world. The Widow treasure was selected for this special edition National Geographic did on treasures of the world. Not King Tut, but the Widow treasure. Why? 
because it's the only documented pirate treasure in the world. And these coins actually paid for people and they must be preserved because of that. So, and the other aspect of these coins, which gets swept under the ethnocentric carpet and the gold and silver came from Native American slaves who were enslaved in South America to mine the gold and silver for the Spaniards. So you have gold and silver that's mined by slaves, used to buy slaves, it's captured by pirates, a third of whom were slaves. And who were the bad guys in all of this? You know, the people who, ens who enslaved the Native Americans, who enslaved the Africans, or the people who escaped? And there were native, as I said, there were Native Americans on board the Wita as well as, uh, as well as Africans. You don't hear about every day. You don't hear about Native Americans and Africans experimenting in democracy with Europeans on a slave vessel. There's nothing like this in the world. That's why it's so important to keep together. And I've got, and again, when it's always been about money you know, how much the wit is worth, you know, a hundred million, two hundred. Well, I was going to ask you that, Barry, you must be an incredibly wealthy guy because I mean, that's just loads and loads coin. of gold. I've never sold one coin. Um, we've kept the collection, you know, together for, you know, for archeological and for historic purposes. And, you know, it hasn't been easy. You know, I'm ripping napkins in half to try to make ends meet. We could sell the treasure off tomorrow and I could buy a, you know, but we've never done that, although we have certain people who are trying to force us to sell the wit of treasure. You know, certain investors who invested with us, one man in particular, who's, you know, I won't go there. Barry, I, I have worked with you. I've seen you. You wear clothes from last century, literally. Why would you not sell this and become a multimillionaire? I mean, what is it that would prevent you from doing that? Well, I promised someone years and years ago that I would never sell the treasure, that I would keep it together. And the person I promised was myself. <laughs> Anyone else might have been, but I promised myself, I was, please, God, you know, help me find the treasure. I promise I'll never sell it. And that's so I, I promised myself I wouldn't sell it. And that's what I've done. Wow. That's amazing. We only have a few minutes left. I, I have to ask you some uh, questions. You know, what is the upshot of this whole experience? If you look back, you know, what is your biggest takeaway from this whole experience of finding the first pirate ship, not selling treasure? I mean, there's got to be some life lessons that, that have been learned along the way. The treasure to me are the kids that come into the museum and who hear the story about the widow. And I get, the, I get to tell them about the witch Maria Hallett and about Sam Bellamy and about all of the stories of us looking for the shipwreck and how during the darkest times when we really, we had a picture of a turkey for Thanksgiving back before we found the shipwreck. You know, we would just had, but we didn't give up. And this is the lesson for the kids, never give up your dreams. You know, focus on your dreams don't get disappointed. You know, every day is an experience. Every day is a treasure. The treasure is looking for the shipwreck. When you find it, that's obviously the pie in the sky. 
But the real treasure is looking for the shipwrecks and the stories that you get and the people that you met along the way and your friends. That's part of life. It's the ups and downs. It's just don't, you, you just don't go to the grocery store and buy a million dollar ticket. That's, what's that? Big deal. You'd rather go and look for things, follow your dreams, no matter what you do to get to that level, if that's what you're looking for. And it must be a real aphrodisiac for you because you have found many things. You've found, I mentioned Captain Morgan's ship, the Santa Maria from Christopher Columbus, the Witta. But yet I know from visiting you that you're still looking for, even now, Viking um, artifacts and ruins on, on Cape Cod. Coincidentally, I didn't have this here on purpose, but this is a Viking cornstone. And it was found right under where I'm talking now, under this building on this on this uh, sandbar that's 1,200 feet offshore. For those who are listening to this, uh, Barry just held up uh, a large stone, clearly uh, created by humans. It would look like a giant donut. And uh, many people believe that what he found is a, a Viking artifact. Now, in archaeology, there's primary sources, secondary sources. A primary source would be if you found Viking skeletons. That's a primary source or or maybe even a building. Uh, because this was such a trading route that uh, some of these items, um, you know, may have been traded over the years and you're not entirely sure. I know Barry's going to probably get into it, but um, he's also shown me a Viking uh, spear tip that has been authenticated to uh, that it is a real Viking spear tip. But the question is, um, you know, that right was that brought there by real Vikings or was it traded somewhere along the line? Uh, we're just about out of time. I'm looking at the Viking uh, spear tip, which I just described to our audience. I know that uh, one of the, the large questions that you have about that is how it got to Cape Cod. Was it, brought there by Vikings or uh, perhaps traded along the way, or maybe somebody went to a, um, a historical Craigslist of some sort, an ancient time and brought it to America. Well, this is the math that you do, Richard. You know, you put all of the math together. This was found, oh, probably a thousand yards from, from where I'm sitting right now right next to a street it's called leaf erickson street okay <laughs> conveniently okay right within a stone's throw of the viking wall which was found in the early 1800s quote unquote the cape has legends of vikings that survived you know through the decades again this was storytelling, just like the Witta stories that were told. But how did these stories start? You know, and then if you think about this place and, you know, Greenland and Iceland, and why wouldn't, if Vikings travel from Greenland down the coast to get out of the cold weather, why wouldn't they have continued to the Cape, you know, to this area where this peninsula sticks out into the middle of the ocean this is a perfect place, it's, you know, where people would have stopped. Why wouldn't Vikings have come here? 
you can't help yourself, Barry. You know, as soon as you find anything or read a story, it, it is, I, I just suspect you will be on your deathbed and you'll be looking out the window trying to figure out how you get get outside and look for some sort of clue that you've seen. You're you're incredible. And, and I find it so inspirational because there are people who are great scientists and they have lots of knowledge, but you know how to capture people's imagination. And I think that uh, there is a tradition of storytelling by explorers and you just exude storytelling and curiosity. I, I'm gonna let you have the final word. I know you have a motto about exploring and that motto is? Never, never stop exploring and uh, never give up. And um, that's, that's always been my motto. Never ba stop exploring. Barry Clifford, thank you so much for being on Life's Tough, But Explorers Are Tougher. You're one of the toughest guys out there. So thank you for being a guest. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you so much. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.